You are now listening to the June 20th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, this is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Today we'll learn about the story of David as recorded in 2 Samuel chapters 8 through chapter 11 and 1 Chronicles chapters 18 and 19. The scripture tells us how Israel continued to expand under David's leadership. It also tells us about the dark side of King David, how David fell and committed a dreadful sin against the people and against God. The story begins with how God continued to bless Israel and David. Under God's protection, David was able to build up Israel's military power. He would march out on military campaigns for territorial expansion. There were the Philistines to the west of Israel, Moab and Ammon to the east, and Edom and Egypt to the south, and Aram to the north. These and other various nations try to contain Israel in its current place. But of course, David had other ideas. He would challenge them and would expand its territorial claim. At the time, Philistine was probably the least powerful among the various nations surrounding Israel. So David decided to attack them first. The central city of Philistine was called Methagamah, and that was Gath, the same city where David exiled during the days of King Saul. He returned to the city this time as a conqueror. Next, David attacked and conquered Moab, east of Israel. Then he attacked and conquered the most powerful tribe of Aram, living in a fortified city called Zobah to the south. Later, David won the battle against Aram, who had come to support Zobah. After winning the battle against Zobah, He had a great victory in the battle against Edom on his way home. King David was successful wherever he went. As Israel was getting stronger, the nations that had been hostile toward Israel began losing ground. Many nations became friendly toward David. Of course, some nations did not like that. When David heard that King Nahash of Ammon had died, he sent a delegation to Ammon as a gesture of goodwill. However, Hanan, son of King Nahash, presumed there was an ulterior motive for David to send the delegation. Perhaps he wanted to show David how clever he was. Hanan inflicted a great humiliation to the delegation of David. He took David's envoys, shaved off each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them back to Israel. Well, it was humiliating. David had to respond. He couldn't leave Ammon alone. He showed compassion to those whose beards were cut off and asked them to stay in Jericho until their beards had grown back. Then he retaliated immediately by sending troops to Ammon. After what he had done to David's delegates, Hanan expected David to attack, so he requested reinforcements from Aram and Zobah. However, the allied army of three nations couldn't overcome David. After two great battles, 
Amman eventually surrendered to Israel. As customary, these nations that surrendered to Israel became subject to Israel and sent tribute to David. Israel, under David's leadership, was on the ascent. They grew as a nation at a rapid pace. Through David's faith and trust in God, Israel began enjoying a period of the Golden Age, perhaps the greatest in its history, and became a powerful nation in ancient Middle East. David knew his successes had come from his obedience and trust in God. However, in one weak moment, he forgot all of that and committed a dreadful sin against God. He eventually came to his senses and threw himself at the mercy of God. Repenting before God, he wrote a prayer of repentance in Psalms 51 that has been adopted as lyrics in gospel songs today. In Psalms 51, David pleads with God to create in him a clean heart and not to take God's spirit away from him. Here's what happened. When all the kings go to war, David stayed behind in his place. In one lazy afternoon, he woke up from his nap. To get some fresh air, he walked up on the roof of the palace. From the rooftop, he then spied a beautiful woman bathing. She was Bathsheba, the wife of the general, Uriah, under David's command. That afternoon, Uriah, as David's loyal servant, was in battle with Ammon. The Bible records that she was very beautiful. After seeing the beautiful Bathsheba, David couldn't overcome his lustful desire. He had her brought to the palace, and Bathsheba became pregnant. When David found out Bathsheba was pregnant, he schemed to cover up his misdeed. He called in Uriah from the battlefields in hopes that he would sleep with her and make the whole thing look like Uriah had gotten her pregnant. David sent word to General Joab in the battlefield and told him to send Uriah back to Jerusalem. When Uriah returned, as he planned, David ordered him to rest at home. However, Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go inside his house. He said he couldn't go sleep in the comforts of his own house when the Ark of the Covenant, General Joab, and all the men were out in the battlefield. So David got Uriah drunk, so his resolve would weaken and he would return home to sleep. Yet Uriah didn't go in the house. Eventually David returned Uriah back to the battlefield. Since Uriah would not sleep with his wife, there was only one other option. David needed to have Uriah killed in the battle. He wrote a letter to General Joab. According to 2 Samuel, Chapter 11, verse 15, he had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him, so that he may be struck down and die. General Joab placed Uriah and a few of David's men in the front of the battle line. They fought against the city, where the battle was the fiercest, and they perished. David heard the news that General Uriah died in the battlefield. After the time of mourning for Uriah was over, David brought Bathsheba to the palace and she became his wife. Afterwards, a son was born. It seemed as if David's wrongdoing was covered up. But God, 
who knows all things, sent prophet Nathan to David to confront him. Nathan rebuked David for what he had done. Prophet Nathan did that by telling David a story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he cherished. Now a traveler came to visit the rich man, but the rich man did not take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, killed it to prepare a meal for the traveler. When Prophet Nathan finished the story, David became angry towards the rich man. He said, The rich man who took the lamb of the poor man must die. Then he said the rich man must pay for that lamb four times over. In response, Prophet Nathan unleashed his rebuke. He said the rich man was King David. Then he told King David what God had said to him. Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7-12. through 12. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Through prophet Nathan, King David came to his senses and understood God's wrath was upon him for his sin. He confessed his sin and repented before God. God stopped his wrath against David and forgave David, who repented for the wrong he had committed. But because of this misdeed, David had given occasion to the enemies to speak against God of Israel. At a more personal level, the child born from David and Bathsheba would die. After prophet Nathan left, Bathsheba's child developed a severe illness. David tried to make the child live by desperately pleading to God while prostrating himself on the ground and fasting all night. But eventually, the child died seven days after the illness. When David found out the child had died, he got up from the ground, he bathed and refreshed himself, changed his clothes, and went in the tabernacle to worship God. Then he returned to the palace and ate food. The servants couldn't understand David's behavior. When the child was alive, David wept and fasted, but after the child died, he acted like nothing happened and ate food. David explained this to the servants who could not fathom this behavior. 
While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. In this way, David demonstrated his understanding of what separates men from God, what belongs in human domain, and what is in the realm of God. After the child died, David had comforted Bathsheba, and she gave birth to a new son. The child's name was Solomon. The name Solomon comes from the word shalom, which means peace and harmony. They probably named him Solomon, remembering how God forgave David's sin and gave him a new child. Because God loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to also give him another name, Jedidiah. As God reaffirmed how he forgave David's sin, he also helped end the intense battle against Ammon. General Joab attacked Ammon's capital, Rabbah, and besieged it. Facing the final battle, Joab sent messengers to King David to come and join the battle so he would be the victor. David captured the city of Rabbah. He took the crown from the king of Ammon and wore it on his head. He captured all the cities of Ammon and brought a great quantity of plunder to Jerusalem. He subjugated the Ammonites who fought against Israel and had them do manual work for Israel. This ends our story for today. I'll see you next time from Story of Kings. Goodbye.
psalmist says that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And with the gift of this new day comes a brand new chance to worship the Lord. Tell Him in a fresh new way how much we love Him, how we praise Him. We love you, Lord. Let's sing like this. Thank you for a brand new day, a brand new chance to stand and say I love you, how I love you. Oh, thank you for a brand new day, a brand new chance to stand and say I love you. Help me find the words to say. Oh, help me find the words to say to tell you. Next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Keep It Clear. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Now, the Bible talks about pointing people to Jesus, and we point people to Jesus by talking about him. In the Bible, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses. You're going to go forth and you're going to testify for me. And a witness is somebody who talks about what they have seen, they've heard, or they've experienced. Like in a court, a witness is somebody who talks about uh, what they've seen, they've heard, and experienced concerning some particular matter that is pertinent to a case, right? And many of you said you've been witnesses, or you've been in a court where you've seen a witness testify. And so God says... In fact, he commands that we witness concerning Jesus. Jesus says, you will be, you shall be my witnesses. 
And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, in the book of Acts, we see early on in the book of Acts, Peter and John are brought before a religious council, and they're told to be quiet, to stop sharing the story about Jesus. And their response is real important because they say, we cannot stop sharing what we have seen and heard. That's what a testimony is. And they said, we can't stop talking about our witness, our story. We can't stop pointing people to Jesus. As Jesus followers, we are expected to, commanded to share our witness about Jesus. Our story is all about Jesus. On the day of Pentecost, there were 120 believers in Jesus gathered in an upper room and they were praying. And suddenly, the Holy Spirit came upon them just like Jesus said he would. Jesus says in Acts chapter one, verse eight, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Jesus in Matthew 24, I believe it is, he said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from heaven and then you'll go forth to do the ministry that I've asked you to do. Jesus gave us a task that is crazy hard if you think about it. Sharing the gospel is scary. Sometimes it's hard to speak our story. It's tough to point people to Jesus for sure. But Jesus says, you're not gonna be doing this by yourself. I'm sending power from high. The Holy Spirit, he'll come and he will give you the strength. He'll give you the power and sometimes you're just gonna stand there as you're talking or sitting, sharing with somebody and you are gonna just think, where's this coming from? Man, I wanna take notes on myself. I never thought of that before. And the Lord's speaking to you that way. I saw something, if you'll open the Bible to the book of Acts and birth of the church here happens and the first Christian sermon is recorded here in the book of Acts. I had never seen this before. You've read the Bible, but the crazy thing about the Bible is you can read something over and over and still something new pops up. Did that happen to you? That's happened a lot of times to me. And this happened to me when I was looking at the first sermon, the first Christian sermon that ever been preached. Now, some people say, well, Jesus taught, wouldn't that be a Christian sermon because he was the Christ? That's really not how I'm thinking. I'm thinking the church is just born, right? The Holy Spirit came upon the church, Acts chapter one, Acts chapter two, and now the first sermon ever. And I was looking at the sermon, I thought, I've never seen this. Look at Acts chapter two, verse 22. The sermon begins like this, Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Is that amazing? The very first words of the first sermon of the first church is what? Jesus. And really, that's the start of the message of the church and of Christians, and it continues to be to this day. Our message is all about, say his name, Jesus. Now, I want to ask you a really important question, and I want you to think a minute to answer it, and before you answer it. In fact, you don't have to give the answer out loud, but just think about it. How old were you before you understood the real meaning of the Christmas carol, 
Hark the herald angels sing. When I was little, I thought Harold was the angel's name. (laughs) Harold Angel, right? He was Harold the Angel. It wasn't until I was like 24 that I realized, no, I'm kidding. But sometime along there, I realized that Harold wasn't his name. It was his job, right? Wasn't his name. He wasn't Harold Angel. Oh, well, you know, that, that changed Christmas for me. No. You see, before the days of the internet, the you know, Facebook, Instagram, you know, email, all of that, before all of that, if a king wanted to get a message out to his people, he would have to send a messenger. And the messenger would take the king's message and would read it to people. He'd have to go all over the place throughout the whole kingdom and read the message. Now, there was no amplification either, right? no microphones or anything like that. So the messenger would have to get someplace where people could hear him and he'd have to talk really loud. People would hear the message. The messenger went where the king sent him, when the king sent him, with the king's message, and he didn't mess with those things. He didn't go when he wanted to go. He didn't go where he wanted to go. And he didn't say just anything. He went where, when, and said what the king wanted him to say. So if he didn't go where he was supposed to go or say what he was supposed to do, people would doubt the message. Or if he started acting like some goofball, people wouldn't take the message seriously, right? And think, oh, that's not from the king. This guy's not acting right. This couldn't be a message from the king. The message was from the king. It wasn't about the messenger It wasn't the messenger's message. It was message from the king. This form of communication went very well because people were illiterate. They couldn't read or write, but they could hear the message. The people the king sent to proclaim his message were called heralds, thus the herald angel. They were heralds. They went for the king when the king wanted them to go what the king wanted them to say, and they did it in a manner that didn't draw attention to themselves, but always pointed back to the king. The Bible says, and throughout the book of Acts, clearly, that we are heralds of Jesus. We're proclaimers, messengers of Jesus to the world, talking about him and talking about what he has done for the world. And specifically, we'll point often to our own testimony that is, we'll talk about, hey, this is what I've seen Jesus do, what I've, I've heard Jesus do, and, and this is what I've experienced Jesus doing in my life, okay? That's what it's to be a herald, or to be herald, I think it's like 18 times in the book of Acts alone. Gospel message specifically in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is the word concerning the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, the apostle Paul says, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. In other words, what we share about Jesus and his dying for our sins, and what that means for us and his burial and resurrection. For a lot of people, it's just foolish. But he goes on to say, but for us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Say power of God. Power of God. There's power in the message of Jesus. There's power in pointing people to Jesus. And just let me remind you, 
that when you share about Jesus, the Holy Spirit kicks in. You can talk about a documentary on TV. You can talk about any other subject you want, and the power of God doesn't kick in, all right? But when you talk about Jesus, the Holy Spirit kicks in. His power kicks in. Even if you're not like, you're not the best sharer, you don't think you're all that great. You know what? The Holy Spirit kicks in. There's something about sharing the word of God. The word of God is power, amen? It's just different. God says, I send my word out to do, and I send my word to do what I want it to do, and it always succeeds and accomplishes in its task. No one can stop my word. And so when we share about Jesus, we can be absolutely sure that it is doing a work in the person's life that we're talking to. Absolutely sure, without a doubt, it is doing something. Now, remember, I think I told you, Uh, Last week, it is not our job to convince anybody that they're a sinner, to convict them of their sin, or to convert them. How many of you have been like totally bugged because you've shared the gospel with somebody and you have done your best to make it clear and you share your story, what you've seen, heard, and experienced with Jesus, and then you point them to Jesus and they reject it. And it's so frustrating. Hello, raise your hand. I'm like raising both hands and a foot, okay? <laughs> it is so frustrating. Though my friends, my, uh, you know, people I come in contact, my family, it's so frustrating when that happens. But then I remind myself, well, wait a minute. I haven't failed. It's not my job to convict anybody or convince anybody or convert anybody. That's not my job. I'm a herald. I'm a messenger, right? I'm Harold Mark, all right? You're all putting H in front of your name. You know, initial H, whatever your name is. H Mike, you're Harold. That's what we're called to do. And we simply proclaim the message the king has given us. But don't mess it up by pointing to yourself, even overtly or inadvertently. Get out of the way. The message is simply the message of the king. The herald was simply a voice. The king wasn't there in person, so you said what the king would say. You said it in a way that would honor the king, and you said it in a way that the king isn't dishonored and people believe the message. They don't look and say, no way, that couldn't be from the king. Look at her, look at him. For a number of years, our family would get to go up to Montana. For a couple of weeks during the summer, it was our vacation. Montana is an amazing place. I love Montana. I really do. And we would stay with some awesome friends of ours. They have been our friends for decades, faithful and true through thick and thin. We cry together. We laugh together. We share. Our family started about the same times. And it's just been an amazing, wonderful journey with these guys. And so they moved to Montana for a few years and they invited us up and we stayed up there and had a blast. It was beautiful. They lived outside of Billings, which is about 30 minutes, I'll say that, from where they lived in uh, Joliet, Montana. Joliet is small. It has Main Street and First Street. Plenty of room to go, right? A little tiny town. I mean, it truly is, you know, if you go, yeah, a little tiny town. And we had fun there. The kids could play without any danger. I discovered that in Montana, if you steal a car, they're going to find you because there aren't that many cars. You might not be happy. 
Also discovered wildlife in Montana. Moose, all the different kind of wildlife. In fact, people don't drive at night in Montana, maybe in the cities, but they don't drive at night in Montana. It's dangerous. Who needs to go hunting when you could drive on the highway in Montana? Our friends said that in the 30-mile trip from Joliet to Billings, they counted the next morning 24 roadkill by the road. I mean, really, it's just you don't drive at night. During the day, for land's sake, I'm driving by a field. As I'm driving, this pheasant comes up, and the pheasant starts to dive across the road, fly across the road, and he was coming right at me. If the car hadn't been going just the right speed, he would have like stuck into my, my jaw. I was like, wow. I mean, everywhere you go, there's wildlife. Everything is bigger in Montana. It's crazy. So one time we were driving from Bozeman and we were going to go back down to Joliet, say Billings, and we were there in Bozeman during the day and then we decided, well, we better head back. And so evening began and we were driving and all of a sudden these bugs started hitting our windshield. I said, in Montana, everything is bigger and the bugs there are well hydrated. They're amazing. The mosquitoes, when they come at you, you think it's a drone? I mean, you know, there's a, <laughs> what's going on? We're, the difference between bugs in Arizona and Montana is a, a bug in Arizona, when it hits your windshield, it just disintegrates because, you know, it's so dehydrated, it just disintegrates. In Montana, I thought somebody was shooting paintballs at our windshield. It was crazy. That night, I had to clean my windshield four times. And I wasn't prepared to do it, you know. I tried at first the windshield wipers with the, you know. And all it did was the bug guts just got spread around, you know. And I mean, you couldn't even see. So I pull over. I didn't have any window cleaner. So I'm taking a water bottle and Kleenex and trying to clean it. It's just, ugh, okay. It was so crazy, I couldn't see where I needed to go because these bug guts were in my way. What? How does this apply? Lord, help me figure this out. How does this apply? You gotta, it's gotta be clear for you to see where you're going. Don't be the bug on somebody's windshield. That's really my application. When you point people to Jesus and you get in their way, they can't see where they need to go. I kind of want to illustrate it this way, so I just need to have my helpers come up here. This is you, all right? And um, I'm going to ask, would you mind being Jesus? Yeah, you just got that look. Who looks like Jesus right now? Thank you, bro. You're a good sport. Okay, just stand around there because I'm trying to point people to Jesus. Go on the other side of my window, okay? Just stand right there. Now, I'm saying, man, let me tell you what I've seen and I've heard and what I've experienced in my life about Jesus. And you're going, what do you mean? I can't see. They're saying, your life, your life is so messed up. I can't see the Jesus you know or you're talking about. This is a lot. Don't take it wrong, But this is the way a lot of Christians' lives look, and your story isn't clear. Amen? So what happens? Well, we hear a teaching like this. 
And God convicts us, and God tells us, hey, you just need to clean up your act. People can't see Jesus, so what do we do? Well, the Lord says, I gave you the power of the Holy Spirit. I gave you the word of God. The Bible says that we are washed with the word, not Windex. (laughs) They are paying for today's message, by the way. But the word, we're washed. Oh, I'm sure it'll get better. That'll go away eventually. Just, no. So, you know, life's pretty bad. So we start, and it's kind of hard. It's not easy. I'm not seeing Jesus yet, but am I going to give up? No, because this is my life, okay? And and the Lord now is saying, no, that would be this one. This is just water. You're safe with that. So, you know, we just keep cleaning. Now, tell me, how long does this process take in a believer's life? It's a lifetime, right? So until Jesus returns, I'm going to be doing this to one degree or another. All right? It's still streak. Well, it's getting there. I'm for it a little. <laughs> Can you see Jesus? All right. <laughs> you look like Jesus. I picked the wrong people, the other messages. You know, they were just didn't look like Jesus. Didn't quite fit. Okay, thank you, Lord. I know, I know. I live in a glass house. My family, my kids lived in a glass house for decades. Everything we did and do, people watch. Happy times, people watch. You hear about grandkids, our kids. You watch, though. Our tough times, people watch. Oh, man, can you imagine thousands of people scrutinize what you do during very tough times when you have to make hard decisions and they don't agree? But you're in a glass house or the fishbowl like some people talk about. But you live in a glass house. You live in a fishbowl, too, because people are watching you. And when you point to Jesus, we want them to be able to see Jesus. And that happens when we walk the walk. Hey, we're not perfect. My window isn't clean. And you know, at our house, we have a lot of windows. This house, we were in a house in central Phoenix. It wasn't central Phoenix then, but it is now. That we moved from that house and we moved to a house. We have so many windows, it's crazy. And I cannot get them clean. Oh, don't. Use newspaper, I did. Use joy, I did. Use dawn, I did. What you need to do, what, you know, what, I've done it. They're streaky, I can't get them clean. So I look for somebody, window cleaner, they come. Oh, use a squeegee, I did. Okay. Use a sponge, I did. Anyway, use this. I can't get them perfectly clean. That's not going to happen until the Lord returns. Even the moment they do get clean, you pay somebody to clean your windows, it rains. But just enough before a dust storm, right? (laughs) So discouraging. That's the way this life is. You know, about the time you think you got it all clean, uh, something happens. Okay. But the process of our life. Now, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4, because there are some things that will just keep people from being able to see Jesus clearly in your life. These are things that we want to get the spiritual Windex out and um, with in partnership with the word and 
with the Holy Spirit, we move forward. And I say in partnership, some people say, well, that's the Holy Spirit's work. Yeah, but I have to agree and go along with what he wants to do, right? I have to choose to do what he wants me to do. So here are some of those things that are real important. This might be this, the spritzes of Windex on your window that Jesus says, okay, the word is there. Now you need to clean this off. So here we go. Look at Ephesians chapter four. Let's look at verse 24. And put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Don't lie. Be angry and don't sin. Don't go down, let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, if you hold on to your anger, you give an opportunity, a foothold for Satan to, to get into your life. Don't steal, verse 28. The thief no longer steal. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Your words can fog up and mess up your window, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may grieve grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't make him sad. Don't make the Holy Spirit sad by living this way. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness, are you a bitter person? Are you bitter at somebody? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Slander's gossip. Do you gossip? Do you listen to God? If you listen to it, you partake in it. Let that be, and it's mud on your window, that's for sure, along with all malice. And then he says, be kind, just be nice to one another, tenderhearted, and you forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven. Just as Jesus forgives you, you forgive one another. Chapter five, verse one, therefore, basically just be like God, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The Bible says, as unbelievers see our love for one another, they're gonna see that we're Jesus' disciple. It's a testimony. As we love one another, it's like another spritz of window cleaner on the glass. And the world says, well, now I see. And I see they must be followers of Jesus. But sexual immorality, verse three, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Look at Colossians. Go just next door, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter three, verse five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, wanting whether people have that you don't. Because on account of these things, the wrath is God is coming for the world. Why should we be living like that as believers, right? Look at verse seven. You used to live like this when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, 
seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. Verse 12, put on then as chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Your heart should go out to other people. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if someone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus is saying, okay, that's my will. He says, now, you and the power of the Holy Spirit start doing these things. And that's what we all want to do, right? Nobody wants their life to look like that, especially when we stand before the Lord. And he says, hey, I gave you my word. I gave you the Holy Spirit, and I gave you your will. What did you do with that? I want to be able to point people to Jesus and not get in their way. How about you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message that you've given to us, that somebody shared with us what they had heard and seen and experienced with Jesus. And as a result, our lives have been transformed. We want to be heralds of the gospel. We want to be proclaimers of truth, and we don't want to be in the way. Please clean us up, and and yet don't let any of us feel hopeless. It's just a process. It takes some time, but it doesn't take that long before people will be able to look through and believe the message and see that it's true because we're out of the way. Thank you for this. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord for his word. Fixed upon it, mount of thy 
Find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Coming up next is praying for the next generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. Recently, I've seen the word shalom frequently expressed in people's greetings, texts, and posts on social media, wishing God's peace to be upon others. The meaning of the Hebrew word shalom is peace, tranquility, harmony, completeness, favor, prosperity, safety, well-being, wholeness, and to be victorious. The noun shalom is derived from the verbal root. Shalom, which means to restore in the sense of replacing or providing what is needed in order to make someone or something whole and complete. It also means to break off all authority that would attempt to bind them to chaos. Isn't this powerful? Let's praise the Lord who is our peace. God, as we praise your holy name, let your brilliant face shine upon us. 
you fill your faithful followers with heavenly peace as their minds remain focused on you. You are our radiant hope that holds us. You are the eternal peace that sustains us. You are the mighty stronghold that protects us. You are the mighty God, extraordinary strategist, master of wholeness, father of eternity, and prince of peace forever and ever. Amen. As we enter into a time of confession and thanksgiving, Let's meditate on Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7 which says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. My brothers and sisters, are you currently living in God's perfect peace that guards your hearts and minds? If not, what is hindering you from fully experiencing His blessing of peace? Let's ask Him to search our hearts and teach us how to live in His shalom of heaven as our lifestyle. Search us, O God, and forgive us for being distracted and pulled into different directions by allowing our worries and fears to rule our hearts and minds. Teach us how we can be saturated in prayer throughout each day and offer our faith-filled requests before you with overflowing gratitude. Show us your ways of wisdom and heavenly rhythm of life. Thank you for blessing us with your gifts of peace, favor, safety, wholeness, and victory. Lord, we love your oasis of peace and brook a blissful joy. Amen. Today's scripture for intercession is Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, which says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The power of God's Word brings us life-changing transformation, divine encounter with Him, and heavenly perspective. Let's unite our hearts and pray that this year, God will revive the next generation through the power of His Word. Father, we are truly happy when we walk in the light of Your Word and seek Your face as our heart's passion. Your living Word is our purest jewel and deepest delight, and we treasure it in our hearts to keep us from committing sins against You. Lord, we cry out for the next generation. Sanctify them by the power of your truth. May the words of their mouths and their meditation thoughts and every movement of their hearts be pure, pleasing, and acceptable before you. Consume them with holy hunger to know you as their Heavenly Father and revive them by your living word. Open their eyes to see the miracle wonders hidden in your law. Give them discerning hearts so they can grow in your word richly and understand your truth with wisdom and insight. 
breathe your life into them and strengthen their inner beings by the unlimited power of your Holy Spirit. Guide them into the paths that please you and give them a holy desire to walk in your perfect ways. As they journey through life, let your statues become the themes of their joyous songs of worship, filled with hope and thanksgiving, flowing from their hearts of love and adoration. Father, draw them close to your heart so they will have an intimate relationship with you and give them grace to walk in your footsteps. May everything they do flow from a fiery passion and wholehearted devotion to you. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.